You're listening to Headshots, the psychology and gaming podcast. Join Dr. Kelly Dunlap and Josue Cardona on a mind-blowing exploration of games. Hey, Kelly. So I saw an article on Polygon, which is kind of what sparked today's uh, conversation. I'm not sure where it's going to go, but I'm excited about it because it said that overall, uh, this is the title of the article, Overwatch's Gamer Girl Hero Inspires a Feminist Movement. And it's talking about something called the National Diva Association, which is an organization that formed, and I don't know how big of an organization it is. I don't know, um, you know, what kind of influence it has, but it, it, it seems like it's doing something in South Korea. And the way it came about and what it's, you know, what it stands for is really interesting to me. And the reason why this, you know, got, got any attention was because of the Women's March the day after the inauguration here in the United States. So mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to bring it up because it, it brought up for me not only the idea. At first, I wanted to talk about the idea of gaming and how not only how empowering it is, but how gaming figures can take on a more significant role in people's lives. And then that kind of got me down this rabbit hole of just games that have some sort of political significance period. And so I, I want to see where this goes. What, what, what do you think of that article? Well, my first thought is the world would be a better place if the term gamer girl never existed. Like, seriously, I know I know it's alliteration and that's why people like it. But I hate that term so much, so much. So I, the, the title really is off-putting to me. It seems very, um, what's the word, patronizing, I guess. Mm. Uh, even though the article itself is, is pretty solid. It's talking about, like you mentioned, the, the movement, uh, a feminist movement based on the diva character from Overwatch. And I'll be completely honest, I have not played Overwatch. Uh, but obviously, it's become such a huge thing that you kind of have to know about it. Uh, if you if you live on the internet and are in the gaming sphere in any way, so it's it's a really interesting idea of first of all the the importance of representation, the idea that there is a female character out there uh, who, if I remember, she's gender queer. Is that correct? Um, no, and my understanding is not diva because there is another character. Am I am I getting my Overwatch people confused? Possibly. There's a lot of very interesting characters, and a few of them have had – there have been conversations around them, like Racer um, more, uh, most recently. But I don't think, I don't think she's queer from the, from the article. I may be wrong, but I, I don't think so. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, I've heard a lot of really great things about Overwatch. I know – I think while it was while I was on maternity leave, you did an entire episode on the positivity associated with, with Overwatch, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, on the, the, the way the game is designed. And that was inspired by a conversation you and I had a while back based on a GDC conversation about um, pro-social gaming. And, mm-hmm. oh, like Overwatch just oozes pro-social gaming. So I'm, I'm not surprised to see something like this come out of it. You know, you, you put representations out there and people are going to identify with them. And what I've typically found is people who have never had the struggle of having a lack of representation don't get it. Uh, one of my, my favorite lines from several of my my male gaming friends who are very supportive, so it's not a knock on them, but I usually get a lot of, hey, well, you know, I play a female character in X game, or, you know, I'm, I prefer playing a female character in Skyrim. 
And that seems to be kind of the, the go-to of, well, I can play a female character, so why do you have a problem playing a male character? Or why, why is there a need for diversity? Because I don't see a problem with it. And one thing that I always like to bring up is it must be nice to make that choice. And I, I think I've said it before, if not here, then a million times someplace else, that if I didn't play as a male character, I couldn't play games. You know, that's, 99% that's been a of the different, time. It's been, yeah. it's been different for the last couple of years, which has been great. But if I if I refuse to play a male character, I wouldn't get to play these games that are that are huge. And if you look at the, at, at the opposite way, if you refuse to play a female character, what would you really miss out on? Because even in the space where there are uh, genders to choose from, like in Skyrim, you can choose your gender, you still have that choice. And there's a, a really fantastic article. Oh, gosh, I can't remember who wrote it, but it was making the argument for when you're talking about diversity in games, making games with female lead characters where there is no option. So there's, you know, the, the, the traditional AAA game, you know, 30 something scruffy, somewhat racially ambiguous, probably white male who has a tragic backstory. The next in the middle is kind of a Mass Effect where you, or a Skyrim where you can choose who you want to be and what you want to look like. And then a much rarer game is one where the protagonist is female. And even rarer than that, the protagonist is female dealing with issues that pertain to women. And the article was arguing that there need to be more games where there's not a choice, where you you have to play as a female character and experience the world uh, through the perspective of a woman, because that leads to the more open-mindedness. The argument being, if you're open-minded enough to play as a female character in another game, you're probably not the person who's causing the problem, I guess. Or you, you are less problematic than somebody who's like, ew, I don't want to play as a girl. That's that's lame. That's like a girl. There's there's a lot of talk about Mass Effect and it being, oh, it's so great that you can play as, you know, male Shep or femme Shep. But there's a lot of discussion surrounding how regardless of which one you play as, the relationships, for example, that you can have are pretty much the same, right? So it kind of presents this idea that then both characters or every character that you could possibly um, interact with romantically is also then bisexual and that they they don't actually care about your gender either. So then how important is it that the character has a gender? So as, men, as, as much as it... Um, moves certain things forward. It also doesn't address other areas. And and I think Mass Effect is one of those clear examples. I'm curious how they're, they're going to touch that in Andromeda. But did that article have any examples of a female? Like I'm thinking Tomb Raider, Metroid, those games, it doesn't matter that you're playing a female character, that you're not dealing with female issues. Well, there was one in the, the reboot, the Tomb Raider reboot. Was it 2000? 13, 2013, I think. Sounds about right. Not Rise of the Tomb Raider, but the, the, the one before, the, yeah, the, just Tomb Raider. The original reboot. There was a scene that got a lot of attention where in the, one of the very first levels, Lara is kind of uh, cornered by one of the villains and it has a very um, sexual assault kind of vibe to it. Like he, the guy who's captured you has pinned you against a wall. He's taller than you he's kind of leering down on you making kind of suggestive comments nothing like outright but it was it i mean it was very very uncomfortable for me uh, mostly because you're seeing it almost exclusively from lara's perspective it's not like it's still somewhat third person as tomb raider is but it's kind of and that plays out in the cinematic too 
and it's and it yeah. isn't a cinematic um but you do have to there's a um a quick action event so you do have to like wiggle out of it and i remember there was such outcry from the male community about how gross and weird that was and why are you playing like this and this is this is not okay i'm like dudes do you realize that that kind of thing happens to women all the time like i mean obviously not in a jungle after a shipwreck but the the idea of having a male who is usually larger than you pushing himself towards you making you feel uncomfortable that's a really important thing that dude need to understand if they already don't like that's an experience that i would say most women easily most women have at least some time in their life and oftentimes it goes a lot further than just feeling uncomfortable so that's kind of the argument for <clears throat> forcing players to play as a female character who's experiencing things that women experience because then you actually do get to kind of dive into that and maybe maybe pick up some kind of empathy for what it's like to be in that position that is a good example i forgot about that scene at the beginning were there any other examples in that article of of other games like i i can't think of many games that that do it at least not mainstream games yeah, not not very many AAA titles will even let you play as a female character, much less explore um, women's issues. There's a, a bunch of indie games, I'm sure, that are out there that that do this in a, a somewhat similar way. Maybe Braid would be an interesting example, even though you don't play as a female character. Yeah. And you don't know what's happening till the end. <laughs> yeah, and then you realize that you're the creepy guy who is chasing this woman who keeps saying no to you. Yeah. And that kind of experience, I think it's still very male perspective. You know, when a guy figures out, well, what do you mean? I was just trying to be nice. I was, I didn't mean to stalk you. And I think it's still very male perspective. But I, you're, the more indies that come out, the more diverse perspectives you're going to get, and the more kind of unique experiences you're going to get um, by being able to play as a as a female character. So, have you ever seen before this the Steve example a female gaming character that had some kind of it doesn't have to be as big as, you know, something that's a movement, but some some kind of traction behind it, some kind of, you know, that it became a symbol for something else that you remember. Even if it's small, I I had trouble finding anything. Well, I can think of two examples. One was Mrs. Pac-Man. Mm. That was one of the very first forays of playing as a female character. Now, obviously, there's a lot of issues with it. What makes her female is a pretty the bow pink in bow. her hair. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the original Pac-Man, it's not like he has a gender, but when Mrs. Pac-Man came out, that kind of default made Mr. Pac-Man. So that was one thing, but you know, at least it was a game that had a female character that you could play, which was um, pretty unusual. And again, the, the original Tomb Raider has such an interesting history, uh, intersectionality with feminism. Uh, there's a really great chapter on it in Rules of Play by Salen and Zimmerman, and it talks about how, on one hand, the Lara Croft is Lara. I'm sorry, Lara Croft is seen as this feminist icon. You know, this, especially in the original games, she was incredibly um, top heavy, and you know, wore Daisy Dukes in the Arctic, and it, it was very male gaze, very obviously developed by men for men. But the idea that you could have a, one plays a female character was still like an amazing thing that could happen Two, she was competent. You know, she didn't really, I can't speak for all of them because there's been so many games, but I don't remember her ever having to be rescued. You know, she could fire guns. She was an explorer. She was an adventurer. You know, she was the female Indiana Jones. Um, 
which was really cool. But there's a, a fascinating history behind uh, Lara Croft is the, the creators, they basically made a Indiana Jones spinoff, which I'm sure we can all tell. And the boss came down, looked at the character and said, we're going to get sued, change it. And so rather than just kind of create a whole new game or a whole new character, they basically just put boobs on her. So originally Tomb Raider had a male character lead, but because of worries about being sued, they changed it to a female. So it's not like there was an intent for a female revolution. There was not intent for female empowerment. It was they just didn't want to get sued. And of course, you know, the exaggeration of the of the chest and the butt and even her moves like she's there was one time I was climbing a ladder and then she does this inverted handstand back bend where her legs spread out. And I'm like, really, who does that? So there's a really interesting on one hand, it's a female character. She's wearing what she wants. She's doing what she wants. She seems to be empowered about herself. Uh, she's competent. She seems sexually liberated in the fact that she's doing whatever she wants. But at the end of the day, to me, the idea that she was she was intentionally designed for men to enjoy playing. Like the only way they could get guys to play this game was to make her physically attractive and to do pan shots of her butt and her chest. So I find that disturbing. But at the same time that Tomb Raider came out, it was very much in the 90s kind of um, the girl power movement, like the Spice Girls and the women's soccer team winning the World Cup. And there's this big girl power movement. And I think Tomb Raider kind of got caught up in that despite the original intentions. So I think she continues to be kind of a, a female icon, especially now with the reboot, when she is a much more, she's a fuller character. She's not just pixels with boobs and a butt. She has, you know, an internal life and she does things for herself and her world does not revolve around a dude. So it, it, I have a hard time with that one because it, it, it is, to me, it, it is so divisive um, on that front. And it's strange that both games, the old games got two movies and now the new games are also getting a movie in that it was popular enough that someone thought, Okay, we're gonna do this, and there's still there's something about the the new games. I mean, they're just really good games with a female um, protagonist. There are some. I I believe the second game has a lot to do with like finding what her father was doing, uh, type of thing. But otherwise, it is they are really fleshed out characters, and and then it's, they're just they're they're fun games to play. They're just you good know, which games, is yeah. which is really yeah. cool. Yeah, I did I did I tell you what I did? I think I did at some point. Uh, where I became kind of a mass murderer in Tomb Raider. In the first one or the second one? The second one. Why? No, Rise of the Tomb no. Raider. Please tell. So there's this There's this really, um, it's definitely a, a skill gate. Like you have to prove all these different, that you have mastered these different skills to get past this point. And there's this huge camp of all these bad guys. They're not Nazis, but they might as well be Nazis. And I unlocked a perk where I was able to stash some kind of biological weapon on a dead body. So what I would do is I, I crept into this small little corner. I waited for someone to come, pa- come past, and then I basically um, slit his throat silently, because I am a ninja, apparently. And then I would stash my, my biological weapon on his body, and then I would run away and hide. And then what's really cool about the game is that the AI is really, really smart. So I would then shoot my bow and arrow and it would like ping right above the body, which would get the attention of the other guards. So another guard would go, what was that? And walk over and go, oh no, they killed Jimmy or whatever. And bend down to try and help him. 
well, that would trigger the biological weapon, and so he would die. And so then I'd run out, plant another one on his body, run back, shoot another arrow. And it got to the point where there were like five or six bodies deep, and they still kept going, coming over and going, what's going on? And I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me or about the game, other than it was expansive and I, and I was allowed to explore it and play in that kind of space. I enjoy these moments where I get to peek inside <laughs> behind the curtain of what is Kelly. Yes. <laughs> yes. So so I'm going to go back to that to that Overwatch article, right? Because there's okay. something really important about it that that kind of puts things into per, in, into a different perspective, which is that the what what the what that group, the National Diva Association is saying is that in the game, she is um, Diva is actually a championship StarCraft player, and they recently had in in South Korea a situation where they had a player who is female who is doing so well in uh, in the particular. I forgot now if it was StarCraft or if it was Overwatch. I think it was Overwatch. She was doing so well that she was accused of cheating and banned and investigated because obviously a girl can't do that well in games. Uh, Obviously. So they, this whole thing happened and eventually she was clear. I mean, it sounds like she went to, to do some kind of like to the Supreme court, the way that this, this article uh, mentions it. And it may be, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know exactly how far uh, or how popular or how important Starcraft is in Korea for real. But um, so that happened. So they took on diva as this symbol of, of someone who lives in a world that is unlike their own, and they want her to symbolize a potential future that they want for themselves so that in the future there can be an all-star um, video game player who is female and would not be um, essentially accosted in that way. And so it takes on this different meaning where, where she again, she's a symbol sub- representing something that they want to see in the world. And I thought that that was really, really interesting. And I mean, you see that type of thing with other characters and with other people and other mediums, but I, I, not in gaming. Yeah, not not so much. I mean, Overwatch has so many positive things going for it in terms of, of representation, and it is a really important uh, thing to think about when it comes to representing something. You know, being able to see a f- a reality, you know, even if it is a fake reality that's different from your own, where maybe things are different. I think gives hope. And maybe even maybe even inspires people to to strive for that reality. I mean, that's why role models are so important. That's why you know there's this big push to get women into STEM and into to other places of authority, so that little girls can grow up realizing, hey, I could I can do this. Uh, there was actually an article I read this morning, just this morning, about by uh, by six years old, girls already think that they are not as smart as boys. Hmm. By six years old. I mean, that's so young. So it's. Uh, yeah. I think it's great that the game is out there, that people are feeling an attachment to the character, the support that uh, the developers have offered through it, I think is great. I've seen a ton of cosplay about it. You know, I, it's just, I do have some issues with the uh, artistic stylistic choices of Overwatch. I remember looking over the art for different characters and just kind of rolling my eyes, like, really? Okay, whatever. Um, and so again, I'm almost kind of caught in this space where I feel like they're pretty sexualized and exaggerated. Um, the male characters are too, so that's not that's not an excuse. And not everybody. There are and, and not this everybody. This is this is one of the few games that um, 
other than the typical section, like that picture in that Polygon article is, uh, uh, you know, the usual, like you can see the butt, you can see this angle. It's 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 impossible to, to pose that way. But then you also have overweight characters. You have older characters. You have characters of dis- different nationalities. So while it makes the typical usual mistakes, I think it um, – it it does a lot that's that's really positive. Yeah, that that's a good way of putting it. Is I they kind of put the stereotype front and center, but then there's also a lot of interesting characters if you if you get past that. And honestly, unfortunately, that's one of the big things that stopped me from picking it up was the the push of these exaggerated female characters and like really okay, I don't need another one of those in my you life. You can play as a gorilla. Oh, see, I didn't know that. They didn't push that. They didn't push that at all. So yeah, I mean, the, the the cast is very is very diverse. I don't know. So so it's been I've been thinking about it again, like gaming and politics, and I I only thought of I could only think of two examples. One that was always associated with something that was political, and right now I think kind of resonates, just like the the diva association resonated with the women's march and and what's going on now. Um, so I'll bring up the one that's least uh, obvious. There's a game called Shadow Complex, which um, just got remastered, uh, well, more recently on PS4 and, and a while back on PC and, and Xbox One. And it's really like a, it's really just like a 2D Metroid clone. And okay. I always thought that the game, I mean, the game was highly acclaimed. It was, it, it's an, it's an awesome game. I really liked it. I, I recently bought it again, and. But one thing I didn't know was that the game is based inside a fictional universe of two novels by Orson Scott Card. And they're called um, – the first one is called Empire. And it's essentially a novel I've, – I've just started reading it. I've always thought it was interesting and now more than ever because it's about a civil war between the right wing and the left wing in the United States. Oh. That sounds like an interesting conversation to have in a time, you know, when things are seem to be very polarized in 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 the news and in and in politics. So I thought that that if any game had potential to be very like a conversation starter for political issues right now, I thought it would be that one. But I th- I just think that most people don't know that that's that the game takes place in that universe, mm-hmm. and most people don't associate it with that. Um, I also don't know how popular. I mean, Orson Scott Card is a popular. Author, a controversial author, also, but I don't know how popular those um, those two novels are, the Empire novels are. But I thought I thought that that's like at least something that you could use, just like you could use uh, Diva to have a conversation about about feminism. You could have a you could use Shadow Complex to start a conversation about um, partisan uh, politics. That's one of the really strong components of play and games specifically is the ability to explore a vast amount of information and new ideas in a way that's not threatening. You know, because anybody who's been online in the last year or so and trying to have these conversations about anything politically related is is really challenging because people are defensive they there's tons of cognitive biases that kick in like cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias and when presented with information that runs contrary to what you believe human beings tend to just dig in instead of accepting new information and changing their beliefs it's easier to resist a it's easier to pretend a fact doesn't exist than it does to change your belief to incorporate that fact and by playing in an abstract place like Shadow Complex or Overwatch, 
you're not so closely tied to it. You're already kind of in this imaginary, playful space. Like, it makes absolutely no sense that Ellie Beagle Therapy Dog is a world where dogs talk and go to cafes and and have therapy with one another. That makes you, you just kind of accept that as the realm in which it is. So you're so much, you're much more flexible and willing to take in new information because it's a whole new world, a whole new reality, and you personally don't have an investment in it when you start playing. So I totally agree that games can deliver really important information and explorations of rules and systems and ideas because they are just one step removed. So whenever somebody says, well, it's just a game, go, yeah. And that's what makes it so powerful is that you can experience something that if you came across it in quote unquote real life, you might either accept it without thinking or reject it out of hand because it doesn't necessarily conform with your beliefs. But in a game, you can. Yeah, there's 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 another game which um, is much less abstract about it, <clears throat> which is Papers Please. Oh, I love Papers Please. I do. Oh uh, yeah, and uh, so I just I just re-downloaded it this morning and played it for a little bit, and after 15 minutes, uh, it really resonates with something that just happened. Like I I don't know how how well this episode will play in the future, right? But we just had the situation where there was an executive order to um, stop the the influx of people into the country from a specific set of countries right yes and and so i'm playing papers please and the first thing is the first level right that like kind of the training level is you do not let anyone into the country who is not of our country so i'm like whoa okay and you're just turning people away left and right and then when you get into the second level you have all these other rules put into place right and immediately I started making mistakes. I messed up. I let people in that I wasn't supposed to. I, I turned away people that I wasn't supposed to. And it reminded me of a, of a news report I saw. I've, I've tried to, to, to see as much news as I can. Um, I don't know how healthy that is right now, right? But just to get different perspectives. And one thing that I saw was that kind of the stuff that's happened here over the weekend is because the executive order was so abrupt and nobody knows what to do with it or how to do with it, that um, there's mm-hmm. inevitably some sort of chaos. And then I feel like Papers, Please, a game that is five years old now, four years old, it allowed me to experience that idea of not only the 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 immigration piece of having people come in and out, but the confusion of having brand new rules come to me. Right. Because ultimately Mm -hmm. at the like I'm in New York City, uh, JFK was on the news because people were stopped. Like the people on the ground don't know what to do with the rules that are coming down. And I felt like I I felt like maybe that's what these people are feeling on the ground. Not necessarily the people who are being stopped or turned away. That's a whole other experience. Right. But even regardless, I it's on my mind that I'm seeing things. I don't know if more clearly, less clearly, but at least, again, like as a conversation starter, to see this from more than just a, you know, flailing arms, this is um, crazy perspective, you know, everything is more nuanced. And and to think that a, that a game is able to, I believe, represent a piece of that so well was, again, just shot, it demonstrates how powerful games can be because it allows us to have these experiences that are not are very, very far from just talking about it or reading about it. Again, it's the, the idea that games are, are systems. You know, it, very rarely are games black and, and white. 
uh, even games that are on rails, you, you still get to make decisions. And that's not something that you really get to do in, in other forms of media, like movies or, or television or, or even reading. I mean, taking papers, please, for example, yes, you're told to keep out a certain per- type of person, but you have the opportunity to subvert that. You have the opportunity to sneak people in. You know, you, you're it's this balance between keeping your job, protecting your family and, you know, being a good human being. I've played a couple times the first time through, I played as the good soldier. I, I wanted to, you know, glory to Estroska. Estroska? Estroska? Yep. And, you know, I played the good soldier, which really was kind of, eh, I'm glad I did it. But the next time I went through, I, I played more. You feel kind of dirty. I felt really bad, especially um, when I got out and my family didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. And then the next time I, I played as if I was the person doing it, like I, I wanted to play as if how I thought I would do with someone coming through and, and needing help. And I think that is really resonant with what's going on as far as, you know, the people on the ground in the airports, the, the DHS. I mean, I can only imagine how confused they were. There was a report that came out this morning saying that DHS as an agency wasn't even told about this until the order was signed. Mm -hmm. So they were not given any kind of heads up that this was even a thing. And so the idea that people are obeying orders is one thing. Two, the the line of I was just obeying orders doesn't doesn't go over very well in terms of humanitarian rights, uh, as history has shown. And then the the third one being, in a lot of cases, even when the courts ruled to either uh, allow the green cards in or at least let their attorneys in, a lot of the agencies said no. And I think that's what's upsetting to me, is the court ruled. You have to obey the courts. Um, And I, I don't think that was a piece in Papers, Please. But again, a game can only get a snapshot. I don't think it can can capture the uh, whole experience. And at that point, I think you're talking simulation rather than a game. Yeah, yeah. Particularly, like, Paper Sleeves, you your entire game is played at a desk, right? And mm-hmm. pretty much all the agency you have is two different types of stamps, right? <laughs> and uh, and then that that every morning that paper comes in with more information and what you're supposed to do and what has changed. And, and yeah, it doesn't touch on what's going on on the outside that made those, those changes possible or... or who informed your boss? And if your boss is following the rules from his boss, it's not its not that complicated. Um, at least we don't see that happening in the game. The experience is very singular. Yeah. And I think that's one of the strengths of the game, too, is that it is all on you. It is kind of lonely. And there's no support. And I think that there's a big difference there, you know, being by yourself or because we know from just very basic psychological principles that when people feel like they're the odd one out or the only one there, they are much more likely to go along with the crowd type of mentality, um, which sounds kind of counterintuitive if, if you're by yourself. But if you if you have a different view, but everybody else holds another view, you will more likely adopt what the group has because we're inclusive pack animals. And that's that's what we tend to do. Uh, on the other hand, however, if you are alone, if you are by yourself, you're more likely to help somebody, which you know the whole uh, Kitty Genovese uh, observation effect, the idea that the more people are around, the less likely you are to actually help because of the idea of dispersed responsibility. So if someone's drowning and you're the only one there, 
all the responsibility is on you to go save that person. If there's 10 people there, well, then the responsibility is distributed over 10 people. And so there's less burden on you. And so with these DHS guys working, I can only imagine that they are doing what they're told and going with whatever the sentiment of their particular area is. And I, I think that's a whole other yeah. podcast yeah. Yeah. getting away from, from paper sleeves. But I, I think that's a really, really great point to bring up the, the feeling of making those decisions. And I mean, I think it's very real. The idea that if, for example, one of these DHS employees was to stand up and say, no, I'm not going to do this. It's very likely he or she could lose their job, which might would ne- most likely negatively impact, you know, their family and their health and their safety. And so these are, like you said, really real concerns that are not black and white, but shades of gray. DHS, by the way, is Department of Homeland Security. Anybody wondering? Oh, yes, thank you. Yeah, no. Um, the Yeah, like the idea of that top level, um, all of those other decisions that are happening, that reminds me more of a game like Civ, right, where you're literally at the top and you're a government and you're managing every single piece of it. And games like that also make me think about how they they may be good for teaching history and certain things, but there's all of these other horrible things that happen during those events that aren't um, addressed. Like the fact that if you were one country versus another, if you could choose to use child soldiers, for example, you might win against another country versus not. And those kind of options, I don't think are there. I haven't played Civ in a while. But there's there, there are things that right, as a the game design is so important in this conversation because what is the win state then? Like, are you being encouraged to play, again, going back to papers, please, are you encouraged to play as a good soldier? Are you encouraged to play as a humanitarian? Um, and I mean, papers, please does a great job of balancing that, right. And making it more realistic, but other games do not. And uh, actually on, on Rolling for Change, another podcast on the Geek Therapy Network, last week we we talked about the uh, oppression in tabletop games in particular and how some of the games fetishize you oppressing as a player, f- uh, oppressing other cultures just to get more resources or things like that. Or they fetishize specific um, historic events. And again, Papers, Please is a, is a great example of a game that I, I believe does not fetishize that. It, it uses a fictional setting, but very as real st- uh, as real as you can have stakes in a game. <laughs> I think it does it does a really good job of that. And not enough games do that. And then again, but there's still it's complicated because are, if you're making the game, what do you want the goal to be? What what is the message that you're trying to say? Inevitably, there's a there's a message there. Absolutely. And when you design a game, one of the very first things that you think about is, you know, what, what is this? Well, when I design a game, I think about what is the game going to say? You know, not every game is going to have like a very overt message. I mean, just like every piece of art is not a a Da Vinci or a piece of protest. You know, I love the Halo series to death. I really do. But I, although I could read into some interesting uh, theoretical ideas uh, and the underpinnings and the themes, I don't think it's making a, a particularly strong or relevant political statement, so to speak, or humanitarian or social or emotional statement. I think it's a game about saving the world and appealing to people's desire to feel empowered and to play the the story arc of the hero. I th- and our hero is a child soldier who was abducted. <laughs> yes. And brainwashed. Yeah. <laughs> but and that mutated. doesn't really ever... 
It doesn't really ever kind of. I mean, if you read the books, it comes up a little bit. Yeah. Um, but in, in the game itself, like you, don't, you don't ever think about it. You True. just, you just do it. Um, so like I said, you can read into it. But then there are other games like Papers Please or pretty much anything on the Games for Change uh, website that have a very, um, very obvious mission. Uh, anything by uh, Mole Industria, they're a company that makes these very subversive games. And there's one. I don't remember the name of it. It's like, but it's basically a McDonald's simulator and encourages you to, you know, create deforestation in a native land and drive up the prices and treat your workers like crap. Uh, another game called Sweatshop does pretty much the same thing. And you you find yourself that in order to reach the win state, you're doing horrible things that you would never do. Yeah. Now, I do want to put the caveat out there. In no way do I believe that games make us do anything. Like they don't, playing a game about being a, horrible totalitarian dictator is not going to make you a horrible totalitarian dictator. But what they do do is show you the system behind it. And when the win state is a game and is one way, you're going to behave in a way to achieve that win state. And things are very similar in real life where whatever the win state for your life is, whether it's money or happiness or world peace, whatever, it's going to impact how you engage with the world. So I guess that's another way that game design just kind of mirrors real life is that you're you're going for that win state, although the win state will vary from person to person. Yeah. And you have the choice to lose in that sense. And in a game, the stakes are lower, but in real life, obviously, it's it's a lot harder. Oh, man. Games. <laughs> this went well. I was afraid it was going to... I, I'm, I'm hesitant to touch political issues, but games allow us to do that. See? See what just happened? Yeah, they they allow for a really great exploration of systems and rules. And I, I keep coming back to that because well, one that was kind of drilled into my head in the last few years. Uh, but I, again, it's another way to kind of think about engaging with something to get an understanding of it. And I think it also dovetails really nicely with, uh, was it last? I think it was last uh, Headshots. We talked about self-care games. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, there, I mean, there are games that have a mission and they want to teach you something. They want to make you feel a certain way. Uh, you know, Gone Home is like that. Depression Quest is like that. This War of Mine is especially like that. And Papers, Please as well. And then there are games that are just kind of a way to relax and take care of yourself. I have been playing a lot of Bakery Blitz. You know, anytime I'm on Twitter and I start to feel overwhelmed by political things or whatever's going on, I find myself going to play a game where I am a baker and I'm stacking cakes and, <laughs> and that's okay. But like, that's, that's a really good thing to to understand with games that they, they can, they can be all things. They can spread across that entire system from, you know, serious commentary to frivolous play. And it's, it's okay that they're, they're there to be used as a tool for, for what you need. And, and uh, listener, if there are any games that you feel that fall on, Anywhere on that spectrum. I, I'm particularly interested in games like Overwatch right now or even Tomb Raider that they take on a meaning that I don't think the creators intended, you know, just because that's the way that's the way it is. Just like I'm sure that the Papers, Please person had no idea that four years later um, in the United States we'd be having a conversation about how relevant the game is in particular. That's, yeah, that's I felt like <laughs> – it can't, it can't happen here. Oh, <laughs> yeah, Oops. yeah. It's uh, it's it's fascinating, and then and I'd like to hear more examples if you if you know of any. Yeah, get at us. We love hearing you. 
And if you want more Josue and Kelly and a bunch of other awesome, really cool people, uh, Josue started up a geek therapy Facebook group. So just go on Facebook, type in geek therapy, and we will let you into our super awesome group of people who are mental health professionals, gamers, board gamers, comic lovers, nerds of all shades and stripes who are interested in how games can impact mental health. So come join us and hang out. We'd love to see you there. And my hope is that every time we have a new episode, like that will be the place where we can discuss with, with you know, with people who, who listen to the show. Yeah. So I'll put links to that in the show notes. And then for more headshots, go to headshotspodcast.com. For all the podcasts on the Geek Therapy Network, just go to geektherapy.com. You'll see them there. Just go to the listen tab. See, listen, because it's a podcast. And Headshots is on Twitter at HeadshotsCast. I am Josue A. Cardona on Twitter. Kelly is Kelly and Dunlap on Twitter, and we will be back in two weeks. Bye, everybody. You've just listened to Headshots, the psychology and gaming podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. For more Headshots, visit headshotspodcast.com or at headshotscast on Twitter. And for more great podcasts on the Geek Therapy Network, visit geektherapy.com. <laughs>